Here's Anne Graham Lotz. If you read the Bible and go searching for the truth somewhere else, where will you find it? Of all men, of all women, you're the most hopeless because there is no hope except that found in God's Word. You're listening to Bible teacher Anne Graham Lotz on this week's edition of Living in the Light. In her message from 2 Peter chapter 2, Anne points you to the reality of God's Word, its power and impact on your life. But to make it happen, you have to read the Word. Here's Anne. This book is God's Word. Living in the last days, you're going to hear many words from many different directions. People will tell you this is the answer and that is the answer and a new philosophy and something else and a new talk show and some other opinion maker. And Peter says it's important for you and me to be growing in our conviction of the uniqueness of this book. It is the Word of God. Would you read it? Apply it? Obey it? Saturate your life in it and discover for yourself. It's for real. Grow in your conviction of the uniqueness of the living Word of God and the written Word of God. Read the Word for knowledge of God. Read the Word for power to grow. Read the Word for light to guard you against falsity and the apostasy that's going to permeate our world in the last days. Jesus said in Matthew 24, the generation that precedes his return will be filled with false prophets, filled with Bible teachers who profess to give out God's word but actually deny the truth, distort the truth, do all sorts of other things with the truth. They're false. And the world will be filled with false Christ, false messiahs, people who say they can bring peace and prosperity and they can't. They're lying. They do it for their own reasons. How will you and I know the difference? When you flip your television dial, how do you know which person on that TV is for real? When you go to church, how do you know which minister in the pulpit is for real? If there are some who are false, then I expect you and I are going to run across some of them. How will we know the false ones? So let's look at the first two verses of chapter 2. There were also false prophets among the people in the Old Testament, just as there will be false teachers among you. And they're going to promote false concepts. They will introduce destructive heresies, and this is a destructive heresy. They will deny the sovereign Lord who bought them. There will be false teachers out there who will deny the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And they will say that you can be a Christian and pretty much live your life the way you choose, that we're all under grace, that God forgives everything, that you can just go ahead and meander on in your sin and God understands, and they're denying the Lordship of Jesus. That's a heresy. That's a false teacher giving out a false concept. And they also not only deny the Lordship of Christ, they distort the truth. Verse 3, in their greed, these teachers, and in their greed, you understand, many of them are doing it for money or for the position or just for the job, these teachers will exploit you with stories they've made up. And maybe they'll read a verse to introduce their message and they'll take off and they'll never come back to the verse. They just make up the rest. How will you know one of those when you hear them? Read the Word. Read the Word for light to guard you against these false concepts and the false teachers that give them out. Read the Word for light to guard you against the false confidence Peter gives three examples in verses 4 to 9 of people who had a false confidence. 
The first one was a group of angels that actually we referred to in Genesis chapter 6. Nobody exactly knows what they did or what the circumstances were, but apparently there were angels who left their calling of God and did acts that were so sinful and so wicked that God judged them. But the angels left their calling, did what they did because they were confident God would never judge them. I mean, they're angels, the highest of all created intelligences. They had positions of power. They thought they were above the judgment of God, that he would never hold them accountable. But he did. And if you're confident in a position that you hold, if you're confident in any sort of power and influence that you may wield in your family or your church or your ministry, and you think somehow that position and that power exempts you from being held accountable by God, think again. And the next group was those people living in Noah's world. The entire world, as I read in Genesis 6, was blaspheming God. They only did evil all of the time in every part of their heart. You go back and read those verses. It was complete and total. These people were confident in their population. They thought if everybody was sinning, it would be all right because God's not going to judge the whole world. I mean, there's safety in numbers. And if some Christians are being a little permissive here and some Christians and most Christians are being a little impure there and, and my goodness, the majority of people in my church are not reading the Bible, I guess that it's all right. If I just go with the flow, somehow it'll be all right. There's a safety in the population, in the numbers. They thought God wouldn't judge them because there were so many of them doing the same thing. They were wrong. God judged them. It was a false confidence. And the third group is the one of Sodom and Gomorrah, two cities that were more beautiful than the Garden of Eden, Genesis says. And Sodom and Gomorrah lived their way separate from God. They were confident in their popularity because everybody wanted to live in Sodom and Gomorrah. And they were prosperous, they had education, they had universities, they had culture, they had so many things to offer, and they were confident they were so sophisticated, so progressive, so prosperous, so popular. Why, even God liked them. I mean, he wouldn't judge them. He must be impressed with all the things they'd accomplished and all the things that they'd done. And they thought somehow their popularity and their prosperity and their progressiveness, their sophistication exempted them from the judgment of God. They were wrong. That was a false confidence. What do you think is going to protect our world from judgment? When you give out God's word, do you have a sense that the people sitting before you may be lost and coming under his judgment? Does it ever hit you that people sitting before you may be going to hell that this is not a game that we're playing, that it's eternal life and eternal death, that no one is exempt from the judgment of God. Even you and I come under his judgment except we've claimed the blood of Jesus to cover us, and when his judgment falls, it falls on Jesus instead of me, and instead of you, and I'm saved from his judgment. And yet it still falls on my sin, it's just Jesus took it for me. But if you've not claimed the blood of Jesus, the judgment will fall on you. And there will be people sitting in your audience, in your Bible class, in your neighborhood, that have a false confidence. They think God is not going to judge them. What will wake them up? Maybe it will be you, you who've read the Word, you who have applied the Word, 
you who are obeying the word, you who are giving the word out, and the word comes into their life, and God speaks, warning them, judgment's coming, but they'll repent and turn to Christ. And through you, God will save someone from judgment. Read the word to guard you against false confidence. Read the word to guard against false conduct. These false teachers in the last days will have a false conduct. In verse 10, their wills are selfish. It's especially true of these false teachers. They follow the corrupt desire of their sinful nature. They do what they want to do. They live their life according to their own selfishness. Don't we see that in our society? And we see that in many of our so-called Christian leaders. I pray God will not allow people to see that in me. I want my will to be his. I want what he wants more than what I want. I don't want to follow a selfish will. But these people have false conduct and they operate according to their own selfish will. Not only do they have a selfish will, they have slanderous words, bold and arrogant. These men are not afraid to slander celestial beings. Now, I don't exactly understand that, but I know I was flipping the television dial several Sundays ago, and I ran across one of these popular preachers on TV, and he was up there just performing, just marching all over the platform, and he was slaying a demon here and calling on an angel there, and I thought, that poor man doesn't even know what he's doing. He's playing with these supernatural things as though they're toys, and he was trying to impress and manipulate his audience. And the place was packed. And I'm assuming he has a lot of money from them if he can put on a television program. And he was bold and he was arrogant and his words were slanderous. He didn't even know what he was saying except that he was using what he was saying to cause these people to follow him and give him money and support him in his so-called ministry. They have a false conduct, slanderous words, brute beasts, it says, living for the moment just living for that moment of attention they get from the audience, living for that moment of prestige and popularity. And not only do they have slanderous words, but sinful ways in verse 13. They will be paid back with harm for the harm they've done. Their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. In other words, they'll preach on Sunday morning or they'll go to church and they're involved in church, but when it comes Monday in broad daylight, they're living for their own pleasure. Their blots and blemishes, reveling in their pleasures, even while they take communion. It just blows me away how people can sit in church and the preacher can warn them, don't take this lightly or you drink judgment to yourself, and their people are doing it and they don't even know what they're doing. And these people indulging in pleasure while they take communion, eyes full of adultery, who does that remind you of? They never stop sinning, seducing the unstable, experts in greed, who does that remind you of? Read the word for light to guard you against that false conduct. And fourthly, read the word for light to guard you against the false condition. These false teachers who give out false concepts, a false confidence, a false conduct, live in a false condition, and they create a people who live in a false condition, and this is the condition. It's a condition of emptiness. Verse 17, these men are like springs without water. They have nothing in their wells. They're dry. And they still preach and they still teach, but there's no life. And people who listen to them think the Bible is dry and dull and boring and for another time because these people have nothing to give because they have nothing, just an empty spring. Their well is dry. 
And if you give out, and you give out, and you give out, and you give out, and you don't make time to read the Word, and apply the Word, and obey the Word, even though you're not false, you may find yourself in a false condition, and you may run dry and come up empty. Don't expect your preacher to feed you. Don't expect your Bible teacher to feed you. God's given you enough, and you feed yourself that you might not be empty. The second condition was a condition of aimlessness, like mist driven by the storm. They couldn't lead anyone to Christ because they'd never found him for themselves. They couldn't lead people through the Christian life because they were going nowhere. Just mist driven by the storm. They were driven by popular opinion. They were driven by the latest philosophy. They were driven by whatever their denomination decided, whatever the committee said. Just mist driven by a storm. No anchor that comes from being rooted and grounded in God's word. It's a false condition of aimlessness. And then they had a condition of destructiveness in verse 18. They mouth empty boastful words and by appealing to the lustful desires of sinful human nature, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. Jesus said people like this make other people twice the children of Satan that they were. Because people will come to church looking for the truth, looking for God, looking for Jesus, and you hear all of this falseness, and you think then the truth can't be found in Christ, and so you go looking somewhere else, and you're worse off than if you'd never come to look. They are destructive, and we think of the people following these other people in their ministries, and the scandals that have rocked those ministries, think of the damage and the destructiveness that has followed these well-meaning people who have just listened and taken in what these men have said, and the men have led them to destruction. They have a condition of helplessness. Verse 19, they are slaves to sin. They have no power in their own lives to overcome sin in their life. How can they expect to give power to someone else or lead someone else to Christ to have power over the sin in their life? I remember the woman who trained me telling me, Anne, you can only lead a person as far as you've gone yourself. And I can't convey to you the power of Jesus Christ to set you free from sin if I'm still wallowing in it and I have no power to overcome the sin in my life. These men were slaves to sin. How could they help people be set free from their sin? They were helpless. And then they had a condition of hopelessness. In verses 20 to 22, they knew the truth. They've escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and they've become again entangled in it. They're worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. Because you see, if you come to God's Word and you're reading it and you obey it and you give it out and then you forsake it, God has nothing else to say to you. If you read the Bible and go searching for the truth somewhere else, where will you find it? Of all men, of all women, you're the most hopeless. Because there is no hope except that found in God's Word. There is no hope except that found in Jesus Christ. And if you've come to Jesus and decided He's not enough, or if He's not what you're looking for, dear friend, you'll never find it. They have a false condition, a condition of emptiness, aimlessness, destructiveness, helplessness, hopelessness. How will you guard yourself against living in a false condition? Read the Word. Read the word for light to guard you against the falsity that's going to permeate even the Christian world in the last days. Jesus said, if you don't watch out, even the very elect will be deceived. How can you keep from being deceived? Read the word. Read the word. 
Read the word for knowledge of God. Read the word for power to grow. Read the word for light to guard. And read the word for the hope of glory. Oh, Peter ends on the most triumphant note. Because he would say to you right before he dies, this life is not all. I'm not always going to have problems. I'm not always going to be persecuted. I won't always live under pressure. I won't always have a foe. I won't always be in a fight. I won't always have to walk by faith. I'm going to see Jesus. And I have the hope of glory. Jesus said, I'm going to heaven to prepare a place for you. If I go, I will come again. One out of 20 verses in the New Testament refers to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Read the word for the hope of the glory that's to come. And this hope is not a hope so, and it's not something I've cooked up or that has recently just all of a sudden come on us because we see our world deteriorating, and so all of a sudden we have hope. It's a hope that's founded on the past prophets. Peter says in verse 1 of chapter 3, Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of these as a reminder to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to read the word and think about it. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past in the Old Testament by holy prophets, and I want you to recall the words of the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles in the New Testament. I want you to read the word for the hope of glory. You'll find it in the Old Testament. Did you know in the Old Testament there are 46 prophets? Ten of these prophets spoke of the first coming of Jesus Christ. Thirty-six of the Old Testament prophets spoke of the second coming of Jesus Christ. The prophets in the Old Testament had the hope of glory. He's coming. And they knew it. And in the New Testament, there are 27 books. 23 out of the 27 speak of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself speaks of his return 21 times. The Apostle Paul mentioned baptism 15 times. And he mentioned the second coming of Jesus Christ 55 times. He's coming. That is not a hope, so that's a confidence founded on past prophets, our Old Testament, and our New Testament. And not only is it founded on the prophets and the people of God who wrote down his word, it's found on the principles of his word. There are two principles Peter pulls out, age-old principles that have never changed. The first one, what God says is so. Verse 3, first of all, you must understand in the last days scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires, and they will say, where is this coming he promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything's going on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately have shut out the truth, they're neglecting the word, and they forget that long ago by God's word the heavens existed. By God's word God created the heavens and the earth, and by God's word, God destroyed the heavens and the earth through the flood. What God says is so. That principle has never changed. Through his word, he created the earth. Through his word, he destroyed the earth. What he says is so. The second principle, what God does seems slow. <laughs> God never has moved very fast. Now, sometimes he can move quickly in our lives, but usually we are impressed with his patience. In verse 7, what God says is so, and by the same word that created the world, the same word that destroyed the world in Noah's day by that same word, 
The present heaven and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. You see, the return of Jesus Christ is judgment for the world. God says the world will be judged. What he says is so. What he does seems slow. Don't forget this one thing, dear friend. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as you might understand slowness. He is patient with the world, you and me, not wanting anyone to perish. He wants everyone to come to repentance. And there are millions of people unsaved in our world today that ought to wake up every morning thanking God for his patience. Because he is patient, they are not judged yet. They still have an opportunity to repent. Maybe they will if you will give them God's word. Maybe it just takes hearing it in your tone of voice to get them to listen. Maybe it just takes seeing it reflected in your life to get their attention. Our hope is founded on past prophets and past principles. God says, Jesus Christ is coming. Judgment is coming for the world. Deliverance for you and me. What God says is so. What God does seems slow. He's patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Our hope is founded on these past prophets and principles, but our hope of glory is also focused on the future. Verse 10, the day of the Lord will come. Not maybe, not I hope so, not I think so, not someone said so, not I heard someone say I think so. God says the day of the Lord will come. Jesus is coming. Our hope is focused on the future. He hasn't come yet, but he's coming. Be faithful at present in your character. Verse 11, since everything is going to be destroyed and the world's going to come under judgment, what kind of people should you be? You ought to live holy, godly lives. What is that? You ought to be like Jesus, growing in your Christ-likeness and your godliness as you look forward with hope to the glory that's to come. What impact does the hope of glory have on your character? You ought to grow in your character. Read the Word. And then it ought to be a faithfulness not only in your character to be like Jesus and growing like Jesus, but a faithfulness in your conduct. Verse 14, So then again, dear friends, since you're looking forward to this hope of glory, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with Him. And it ought to make a difference in our commitment. Verse 17, Therefore, dear friends, since you have this hope of glory, be on your guard so that you will not wander away from the truth. Don't drift away from God's word. And you will drift away as soon as you walk off this mountain and you hit home with all the dirty dishes and all the laundry and your husband and children saying, well, where have you been? And we've got this and we've got that. And the phone starts ringing and everybody wants you to help them tomorrow. You're going to drift away from the word you've received if you don't make a commitment to read the Word in the morning and read the Word the next morning and read the Word the next day, be on guard or you will drift away. Verse 18, but grow 
in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. And to him be glory both now and forever. Grow in your power. Grow in the light to guard. Read the word that you might keep on growing. Read the word that you might grow in your knowledge of God. Read the word that you might grow in your power to grow. Would you read the word? Read the word. Read the word. To help and encourage you in your work for the Lord, we invite you to angramlots.org. It's a great opportunity to further read, study, live by, and love God's Word. You'll find Anne's daily blog, her messages, Bible studies, books, audio, and video that will enhance your study, your going forward that Anne spoke of today. Anne plan to join us again for Living in the Light.